What's up, everyone? Welcome to the No Duh Podcast with Stacey Gotsoulias. I'm Stacey Gotsoulias. I'm a baseball writer and podcaster who loves pop culture, but I especially love the pop culture from my formative years. Just in case you were wondering when that was, it spans from the late 70s when I was a preschooler through the late 90s when I first started working in New York City after college. And when I say pop culture, I mean everything from TV shows to movies to sports to TV commercials. I especially love the 80s. And most of my shows have been about the 80s so far, and this one is no exception. Before I tell you what it's about, although you're going to know from the title, let's get the business out of the way. You can find me on Twitter at Stace Gotts, and I have a Patreon for this podcast. Just go to patreon.com slash podcast, all one word, all lowercase. I have goals and tiers and rewards set up. Because I have big ideas for this podcast, but I need some help to achieve them. Again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. On today's episode of No Duh, we're going to the place where nobody dared to go. The love that we came to know. They call it Xanadu. That's right. This episode is about the musical fantasy film that starred Olivia Newton-John, Gene Kelly, and Michael Beck. This episode was recorded and edited just in time for the film's 40th anniversary. It was released way back on August 8th, 1980. And joining me on this episode of No Duh is my good friend Paul Francis Sullivan, otherwise known as Sully Baseball on Twitter. He hosts Locked on MLB. He also hosts the Bull Durham Minute podcast, which is a podcast that breaks down the movie Bull Durham minute by minute. I've actually appeared on that podcast a few times, but this is the first time that Sully is on one of mine. But we had a really good conversation because we both love and appreciate the movie Xanadu. And if you also love and appreciate the movie Xanadu, you should enjoy this conversation as well. So without further ado, let's get to it. So I'm very excited because... Usually, I'm a guest on this person's podcasts. I've been on numerous podcasts, and this is the first time that he's on one of mine. So welcome, Paul Francis Sullivan, otherwise known as Sully Baseball. Sully, how are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me aboard. Have I ever been on? I've not been on Locked On Yankees. Nope. (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to discuss Xanadu. As, As you do. And... I thought it would be great to have this up in time for the 40th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Uh, It came out August, 1980. It didn't stay out very long. (laughs) 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 It developed a cult following. Indeed. Where people, I mean, they have gatherings, they do things for the anniversaries, you know, um, it eventually became a musical on Broadway where they kind of made the story a little better (laughs) in the musical on Broadway than the movie. So they, so they made a story, is what yes, you're saying. they actually gave it a story, or kept the story, because mm. um, apparently there were a bunch of edits while they were making the movie, and some things where you're questioning why this is happening, and if they hadn't edited that stuff out, the story would have made more sense. It was probably true. It's yeah. probably true. Because originally it was just going to be a roller skating movie, and because... <laughs> all these people started getting involved in it. They decided they had to make something bigger than just a roller skating movie. So that's why it turned into this fantasy movie with special effects and, you know, girls glowing and 
<laughs> you know, big troops dancing and all that stuff. And yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. The, the, the making of this film, Xanadu, was it has a strange genesis because it was supposed to be kind of a quick exploitation film about the roller skating culture here in Southern California, like around Venice Beach. Let the record show I am currently in Los Angeles County, and but I'm not a roller skater. But there was... It I was, was just going to ask you that. <laughs> I've rollerbladed in the past, but mm -hmm. I was not a... I, this film came out when I was about eight years old, and uh, surprise, it wasn't high on my priority watching list. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back was out. I was a rabid Star Wars fan. Uh, so I was between second and third grade. Uh, so my desire to see a roller skating film was not as high as seeing Empire Strikes Back for the 15th time. Um, <laughs> and also, that was uh, it was summertime, and we used to split our summers between Massachusetts and Connecticut when I was growing up. And whenever we went down to Connecticut, uh, we went to lots of Yankee games, actually. I went and lots of and the occasional Met game, but my Aunt Mary and Uncle Marty would take me. And so I distinctly remember that year because I was a little bitter. It was my first time I felt bitter as a baseball fan because the Yankees had signed away both Louis Tiant and Bob Watson, who were both Red Sox. And I thought, that's mean that they did that. But... Um, but that's not the point. And I didn't see this film when it came out. But it was supposed to be an exploitation film, a la just, you know, a later film like Breakin' mm -hmm. was just cashed in on the breakdancing move. Right. And fellow wrote the movie and was bought by Lawrence Gordon, who went on to produce, like, all the Die Hard, co-produce all the Die Hard films. And there's an added element that we have to address, which was there was disco at that time and there was roller skate at that time. There was also a lot of cocaine at that time. <laughs> and I don't know if you watched the making of Xanadu that was on YouTube. Um, there, the original screenwriter was basically saying, yeah, it was supposed to be a low budget roller skating film. And they kept saying, we had these story sessions with Joel Silver and Joel Silver was the most notorious coked out of his mind producer of 48 hours of he went on to like produce all these like high octane hits in the 80s like 48 hours lethal weapon commando he also co-produced um die hard and there was and 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 until it sort of exploded in the fiasco that was hudson hawk but he oh, was right. but at, when he said we were having these story sessions and coming up with ideas, and all I was imagining is Pacino rising up from the pile of cocaine in Scarface with his nose all covered in white. I said that's probably what the story sessions were like, right? Because that's how you get from let's make a film about people roller skating around Venice Beach to then the mural comes alive and they're. They're, they're Greek goddesses and they're dancing and then they become laser beams that shoot around the city and yeah and then there's cowboy dancing at the end and they're throwing they're throwing uh, what is it like uh, bowling pins while they're juggling yeah, they're and then juggling. they become then, they be <laughs> then there's lights and there's music and there's, there's a cartoon in the middle of it and holy cow I mean there's, uh, there, there's so much the blizzard, it was like the if the hateful eight snow was all cocaine, that's probably what the craft services table looked like on the set of this movie. But 
God bless it, it became a time capsule of that, of what happens when there was tons of money and people felt that they could replicate success of some previous films and um, add unstable people and cocaine and you get Xanadu. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the budget was $20 million, which for a roller skating movie, mm. $20 million in 1980? Yeah. <laughs> you know? That- yeah, that's like what you expect like a Star Trek film to cost. You right. know, that's not a roller skating film. And it ended up making twenty three million, so at least it was in the black, even though it was barely <laughs> that paid for that that didn't even pay for the cocaine. <laughs> no, I was about to say. <laughs> can, can, can you imagine the accountant on that film, all the things he had to hide? The cocaine, like, and uh, and we had to have extra coat hangers. We had, to have extra ca- like, all the things that he had to sort of like. Did we really spend that much money on uh, cheese and crackers? Yes, they were cheese and crackers. Just go with it. So, like, um, like when artists do tours and stuff, and they have riders and they list everything that they needed. I I would assume that if this movie had a rider, it would just be cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I want to just, just, there's one thing about writers I want to just point out. I, this has nothing to do with Xanadu, but it has to do with that sort of writer that the crazy coked out rockers are so uh, associated with. You know, there's the, I don't remember who it was, uh, I don't know as much about music as other people, but who had the writer that they needed to have their M&Ms only be green. You've heard about that, like the, it's a bowl of M&Ms, but only green M&Ms. Yes. And that, that's always been a sign of how crazy these rock stars are and how divas they are. But there's actually a practical point for that. And that is not for the rocker, but for the, the manager. If they gives out, a lot of times if they give out a writer and, and, he say, and you think, did they even read it? Did they even do what we asked? Oh, okay. Yeah, like something that specific. Yeah, that specific and that crazy. And, and it's something that visual. You take a look at the bowl. It's a visual cue. It's a primary color. And if you look in and you see the bowl of M&Ms is green, that's a sign they read it. Right. Good. So I don't have to worry. Like, you know, they're on it. If you see at it and it's not, you say, oh, God, what else did they miss? Right. So while it is morphed into a sort of oh my God, these people are so crazy. They just want the green M&Ms. There's an actual reason for it, especially when you consider, like if they go to like 20 cities and if they screw up the writer, that's on the manager. So this is the visual cue. So Mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with Xanadu, but I figured I'd point it out. If you get nothing out of this, understand the origin of the green M&Ms. So So you said that you didn't see it in the theater. I didn't see it in the theater either. My parents didn't take me. Um, I was when it was released, but I was turning six in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it for the first time at a friend's sleepover in third grade. So that was early 1983. So it took me nearly three years to see the movie. When and Return of the Jedi came out. Yeah, yeah. That's, I why, that's how I judge movies. Is what, what I judge years yeah. is based upon... Who Star, was, Wars. Star Wars and or what the big movie was for me and who was on the Red Sox that year. <laughs> so it was Yastrzemski's last year and it was the year Return of the Jedi and War Games came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and The Right Stuff. That's another film I loved. So. I saw um, 
I saw Empire Strikes Back in 1980 because my mom took me to see the first Star Wars. That was the first movie I ever saw in 1977. Um, I saw Empire Strikes Back in 80. Um, I believe my dad took me that time, but neither one of them wanted to take me to Xanadu. And again, Xanadu wasn't even out long enough for anyone to really see it. <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting. I'll just say this briefly, but we're going to talk about it later. Um, by the time the movie was released, the soundtrack had been out for a month and about a week. Um, Magic was already number one the, the week that um, the movie came out, uh, you know, because the soundtrack did so much better than the movie. And um, as we said, it became a cult classic. But when it was first out, um, you know, critics were like, there was one uh, line that I saw where uh, one critic said, more like Xana don't. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, like you said, it just became a mess of a movie because all these people got involved and decided, hey, we got to make this way bigger than it's supposed to be. And, you know, it just was a mess um, for it, a lot of other people. Uh, you it, know. It's what happens when you see a film that's usually a calamity that it's usually <laughs> taking a Star Wars thing with the Star Wars prequels being the exception. It's usually not one person's fault. It's usually a lot of people who feel like they have to have their voice heard. And it's, it reminds, I have a friend of mine who's one of the writers on Saturday Night Live. And he told me a little bit about when sometimes a sketch comes out and it's a disaster. And you think, how the hell did that script get through and said well maybe it was funny at the table read but do you want instead of that we got to change this instead we don't have much it can be this instead of that can oh do you want this we're, we're short for time we got to cut a few lines out okay we're gonna cut and you made these tiny little changes and at some point the premise of it is messed up and then it lays an egg and so it's usually no one sits at a table where you go, hey that sketch is awful let's produce that one Perfect. nobody goes into a film like this thinking oh my god this is dreadful roll camera and there are plenty of films we brought up star wars people thought that was going to be a disaster when it came out mm -hmm. people were writing that you know close encounters of the third kind was going to be a disaster for spielberg hell read the articles during the production of titanic of what people were saying about oh my god the guy who made terminator is spending all this money on a romance on the titanic this is going to be a catastrophe so it's very difficult to predict sometimes that when a film is like constantly being rewritten casablanca was constantly rewritten when the ending is changed at the last minute fatal attraction they reshot the entire ending of the movie that was yep. a last minute thing and you hear all these things sometimes it turns out Sometimes you get Casablanca, and sometimes you get Xanadu. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or more like it, you get you get a Hudson Hawk, which is a, you know another calamity. But it's <laughs> the, the those all suffer from the same thing. I would watch Xanadu a thousand times before I would watch uh, Hudson Hawk. And based upon agreeing to do this podcast, and we've been delaying it so many times, I've almost watched Xanadu a thousand times. Thanks to you, <laughs> Stacy Dotsulius. Sorry. <laughs> Well, like I said, I wanted to get this up uh, around the time of the anniversary. I figured, you know, 40 years is a pretty big Yeah, it's a big one. It's nice and um, round. I will tell you that I did, I, this did not cross my consciousness. Eight-year-old Paul Sullivan was too busy watching The Empire Strikes Back and baseball. And 
things like what was I watching on TV? I was not a big Dukes of Hazard fan at the time. Oh yes, yeah, I was. <laughs> uh, I, my parents didn't like that show on, so we would watch it when I went to my friend Will McFarland's house. Will, I also was... watched Dallas. I saw Jr. get shot, and I oh. guess who did it? And I was correct at six years old. <laughs> <laughs> and that's on your LinkedIn page to this day, but uh, I, I, oh, the uh, like the Incredible Hulk we would watch, and um, I think the Six Million Dollar Man was no longer on, and, but I think Wonder Woman was still on. We watched a lot of Wonder Woman, but as well we should. But uh, my family in 1981, because of my dad's job, we moved from Massachusetts to Switzerland for two years. I lived third and fourth grade in. Uh, on the outskirts of Geneva, Switzerland, right on the French border. And so there was someone, and this may have been illegal, but we had VCRs, and we there was someone in the office in America who had HBO, which was not, not everyone had HBO at the time. Mm -hmm. And he would take a long-running, like, six-hour VHS tape, shove it in, hit play record, and whatever it was, it could be in the middle of a movie, doesn't matter. <laughs> And one of the films on there that he mailed back over to us in 81 or 82 was Xanadu. Was Xanadu. <laughs> uh, again, I had no desire to watch this movie. My parents watched it because my parents were very big fans of ELO. And ELO was a staple in our car, car rides when we put the cassettes in. There was lots of Elton John. Lots of We were in early on Dire Straits. They were much bigger in Europe than in America at the time. A lot of, as I said, Elton John, Supertramp, Beatles, Beach Boys, and ELO was another big staple. And so my parents watched it. I think my brother and I were watching the making of The Empire Strikes Back in the other room. Because we didn't have Empire, but let's watch the making of it. And, um, and another one was the first 25 years of Sports Illustrated, which had baseball clips. Because I couldn't watch any baseball, but I could watch highlights of baseball. So that was cool. Mm -hmm. And my parents watched Xanadu. And my mother, who I got my sarcasm from, hated it. Hated <laughs> it with 15 A's. And it just was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever. And so in my head, like, got it. No interest. Didn't want to see it before. No interest now. Mm-hmm. And I never saw it from beginning to end until my post-college girlfriend, who you would probably become best friends in the world with, and who I'm still on very good terms. She's still a Facebook friend. We're still on very good terms. Uh, and she loved Xanadu. She was like you. She she watched it like at a sleepover. She's like, you've never seen Xanadu? I said, no, I've yeah, never yeah. seen Xanadu. And I saw so many garbage films, but she couldn't believe that I never got around to this one. And she said, we're watching Xanadu. And, of course, she had it. She like she pulled it out, and it was in, it was in the case, slid out the case, popped it in, and we watched it from beginning to end. And she was the – you know how, like – I'm not a big tennis fan, but if I'm watching tennis with tennis fans, I get into it. I, mean, sure. I used to watch golf with my dad. I couldn't possibly care less about golf. My dad was a huge I'm, golf fan. I was fan. like that with my dad also it, with golf. Yeah. yeah, but when I see how excited, and I think some people are that way with me with baseball, like they say, oh, they like watching it with me because they see how into it I got. Watching it with my then girlfriend, seeing how she just was loving every frame of this film, <laughs> and me enjoying it immediately for what it was. I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. You don't need to explain it. I, I get it. I get why it sucks, and I get why it's great. Right. And right. so, yeah, it was not until 1995 did I see this film. 
and um, and yeah, and I I got it. I got it. Well, for me, you know, I saw it at that sleepover, and you know, it wasn't like I was actively seeking it out and watching it. I listened to the songs and stuff whenever they came on, and um, you know, when I, I got Olivia Newton John's um, one of her greatest hits CDs when I was a senior in high school and I played Xanadu and magic over and over and over again, but I didn't really watch Xanadu again until 10 years ago. After I had my breakdown, I wasn't leaving the house and maybe it was for the 30th anniversary, but HBO was showing Xanadu in August of 2010 and it was on like all the time. So I DVR'd it. And then for a month straight, I watched Xanadu every night after the rest of my family went to bed. <laughs> you said, "Do you know what? It's amazing how a film like that could be a comfort." Mm-hmm. Um, another film that came out this year. It's funny. I did. You said that, and immediately, I I felt a connection to another time. This was in 2012. I was going through some things in my life, and that were not great. And I was in. Oregon working on a TV show called Axemen where they follow loggers and I was all alone for the summer and away from everyone working on this show and for whatever reason I watched the jazz singer with Neil Diamond beginning to end three or four times and I watched the ending of the ending sequence the the you know come into America with, uh, yeah. with with Lucy Arnaz and Laurence Olivier clapping along the ending that was i watched that before going to bed every night and mm-hmm. uh and that became you know you were saying that that you were going through something and and um xanadu became kind of a a sort of a cinematic pint of hagadas <laughs> to throw the top away and 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 munch on another disastrous 80 1980 musical with a with a hit soundtrack uh sort of was my comfort food which was the jazz singer but it's funny that the films like this have that sort of comfort factor mm-hmm. hey, i do what I, I do want to address this because this kind of goes into a little bit what i'm talking about this 1980 was a very very weird time for movies it was this weird cocoon period right and, and i don't mean like old people swimming in a swimming pool and getting horny cocoon. Not that cocoon. Not yeah. that cocoon. But <laughs> like there was, you know, the, the Hollywood system fell in the 60s. Like the studios crumbled and they were all sold off to conglomerates. I didn't know what the hell they were doing. Right. And it kind of led to the beginning of the new Hollywood where the rise of Coppola and Spielberg and Scorsese and Lucas and, and all of them. And then Spielberg and Lucas figured out how to make, and, and John and Stallone, figured out how to make more money than any studio imagined possible. So then it no longer became, we want to make, you know, hit movies and get in the black. We need to make the blockbuster that, that, you know, fills, you know, that, that gives us more profits than we can imagine. And so there's that weird period between, you know, the, the, the three straight years we had Jaws, Rocky and Star Wars come out and show you, we, you can make more money than you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And, the mid '80s, when the likes of Joel Silver and a lot of advertising people, the Simpsons and Bruckheimers, figured out, oh, you know what, we're just going to make sort of product as if we're doing advertising, and that was the rise of like you know all the Simpson Bruckheimer films, all the Spielberg ripoffs, and ultimately led to what we have today. There was that weird period in between where they didn't know what to do, 
where directors were spending so much money. Yet, of course, Heaven's Gate, but like Star Trek, the motion picture, and the Blues Brothers, and Empire, and all these, and Reds, and all these huge budget films that were spiraling out of control cost-wise. Cocaine was introduced, <laughs> and they seemed to be trying to ape other movies. Like, how do we fix that? They were trying to find the formula. Mm-hmm. And so this film was trying to find the formula that Saturday Night Fever and Grease had created, which was the film that, whether or not you like those films or not, I happen to think Saturday Night Fever is a great movie. Me too. I, I've never, of all time. Yeah, that's a legitimately great film. We can that do a on that too. <laughs> that happens to be a gritty 70s film that just happens to have a great soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Grease, it's not for me. Right. It's not. It, it, they didn't say roll camera. We think Sully will love this. That was, <laughs> that was not on there. But my dad took me to see Grease because my mother had just had my brother and she was busy taking care of him. And my dad's like, I'll go take her because I loved John Travolta when I was yeah. little. Oh, he also took did. me to see Saturday Night Fever, but he took me to see the PG version that was released mm. in 78. So I saw both of those like pretty close together. Well, it, what was the point I was trying to make, and maybe I'm being laborious about this, is that that we'll have a film that the soundtrack will feed and the the success of the soundtrack will feed into the movie and the movie will have you buy the soundtrack and it'll be this sort of this it'll become a snowball that's what happened with saturday Night fever as you said they had to release a pg version of it because mm-hmm. we were listening to saturday Night fever in the first grade yeah my first grade class we had playing staying alive a song about someone who's trying to stop being suicidal mm-hmm. and when i was saying <laughs> i'm going nowhere somebody help me <laughs> somebody help me yeah you know and then mm-hmm. greece did the same thing where it was i mean every, 78 greece was just out of control that was the biggest blockbuster of the year mm-hmm. and we're in again i'm in elementary school and kids are doing the one that you want at the talent show yeah Again, yeah. not appropriate. Right. It's oh, about, well, it's about speaking warning. Of, speaking of not appropriate, and this has to do with Olivia Newton-John, um, physical, oh, yeah. you know, everyone's like, because the video's about exercise, so we yeah. all thought it was about exercise. I was it's in second grade when that song came out. And when we had indoor recess in the Northeast, you know, because it was too cold to go outside, mm-hmm. um, our classrooms had folding, um, like a folding wall between them and they'd open the wall. So the two classrooms were one big classroom and we'd have mm-hmm. recess in there, but we had a record player and my friend had the 45 of physical and you had, you know, 35 to 40 second graders singing this song at the top of their lungs, not realizing they're singing about sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I'll <laughs> never forget in that same first grade class where we were blasting the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, We, uh, Jeff Goldberg brought in the best of the village people. And so we were all singing YMCA and in the Navy. <laughs> Bunch of first graders. I love that. Like um, Nobody knew. Nobody you know, knew. No one knew what was going on. You know, uh I mean, I, I kind of got it. In 83, there was that song, So Many Men, So Little Time. And yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of subtle, that song. My little eight-year-old, soon-to-be nine-year-old brain kind of got that, but I still mm. thought it was really funny that we were all singing that at the top of our lungs and our parents weren't doing anything about it. No. <laughs> no they were too busy having key parties. I don't know what they were doing, but, yeah. but I, I think that you saw that it's interesting that you did see there was a bunch of films that tried that formula of let's have like 
Flash Gordon certainly tried to do that with the huh. Queen soundtrack. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I had mentioned the jazz singer, uh, the Urban the, Cowboy, Urban Cowboy, uh, the Sergeant Pepper movie. Oh. <laughs> uh, which, of course, Sergeant Pepper movie makes Xanadu look like the Godfather. Um, it really does. No, it really does. <laughs> I I saw that when we were living in Europe, actually, because we listened to Sergeant Pepper all the time on, mm -hmm. on our on our tape player oh, and we so had, we had the album like my parents would sometimes uh our stereo was on like um like an end table that they bought for the living room yeah and they would display certain albums and sergeant pepper was right there <laughs> yeah yeah well <laughs> going on and tapestry those were the three that were well the movie was like, well how bad could it be um yeah. i never thought i would see George Burns singing Fixing a Hole or Steve Martin's and I God, I loved Steve Martin, but my God, his Maxwell Silver Hammer shoot, that was a that was a war crime. <laughs> but I do you know what in retrospect though, I think some of the some of the Bee Gees covers were pretty good. I mean the Bee Gees sound great. Uh, and I think the Earth, Wind and Fire got to get you into my life is that's a great cover of that. Yes. It's just the so the songs itself were the movie itself was so moronic. I mean, uh, to this day, I'm like, what were they thinking? <laughs> Again, <laughs> they were thinking, well, "Where's was, the cocaine?" Um, yeah, that was um, oh, what's that guy's name? Stigwood. Robert Stigwood. Who, yes, he he produced uh, Saturday Night Fever, and he produced co-produced Grease. Right. And so he felt he had the formula, and yeah. Xanadu was like. You know, obviously you get Olivia Newton-John. Okay, we're going to get the Grease crowd into this. Yep. And it <laughs> sort of, you know, as they said in that making of it, raised the profile of this movie from a low-budget roller skate film, which they probably would have, what, taken three weeks to shoot, probably throw in the theaters, and, you know, maybe have one, try to get one hit song to get some radio play. Right. Uh, and turned it into, okay, now it has to be an epic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you make it? How do you make a goddamn epic out of this? Out of a roller skating of, and and you know, add Joel Silver and cocaine, and um, and this is what we got. And and the soundtrack of Xanadu is good. I mean, there's really good songs in this. Oh yeah, and, but isn't it? I think it's funny because between you, um, and everyone I know who who enjoys Xanadu. Except for my mom. My mom is the lone person I can't, I, you can't put into this category. Although this is a tough film to to just blindly walk into. You know, yeah. you you have to have a little bit of preparation, and you have to be this high to ride this ride. Sort of build up. Sure. You can't just pop this. Hey, here's a regular movie. But yeah. um, almost everyone I know who is actually no everyone I know who enjoys this film. I know a bunch of people who do like this picture. Saw it on. The TV screen, not in the big, in the big, not on the big screen, and with the uh, capability of stopping it if you need. And I think that this film, what I was saying that that Hollywood was trying to figure stuff out, this would have been, if this was an album that was released, and a bunch of music videos, these would be spectacular, because mm -hmm. every musical number. The most of the, I mean, there's a couple of, I'm going, okay, this, I'm not crazy about this, but like most of them are visually startling. The music's good. The dancing, the choreography is bananas, but great. And what weighs down the film? Uh, I'll say it. It's Michael Beck 
<laughs> and, and the attempt to create a storyline. If this was, they hadn't figured out MTV yet. Because right. music videos at the time were just an afterthought. They looked like, you know, I know what boys want by the waitresses or or the, oh, Mickey, you're so fine. It's like, how low budget can we make this? It, it wasn't until, you know, Michael Jackson and your boys and Duran Duran mm -hmm. figured out that, hey, what if we made these look big like budget, mini like, like mini movies? Yep. Um, this film came out like four years too early. Right. That if this was a series, if, if, ELO, Olivia Newton-John, and for some reason unknown to humanity, Gene Kelly, got together to create this wild double album, and we're going to create a slew of music videos. This would be like, you know, think of all, you know, the thriller videos, or think of the, you know, aha, take on me, and those became, those became stepping stones in our culture, and that you didn't have to have the plot of the girl reading the comic book and take on me. It's just sort of no. She's just thrown in there. Imagine right. seeing that for two hours. You put you know you put a gun in your mouth. But you no, know, for for four minutes, it's it's great. For four minutes, Michael Jackson dancing on those things lighting up on the ground. The yeah. Up, yeah. Or or the the dudes on the the Duran Duran dudes on the boat singing Rio is or, or Wild Boys. Imagine we you don't have to have a two hour Wild Boys movie. It's just three yeah. minutes. Do you know how expensive Wild Boys was? Oh, it, it was like over a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. For that and, video. And and but we remember it. We remember it being good. It's not part of this two-hour movie that has to have a cohesive narrative. Right. And so I, I mean, it, you know, like I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but like the, you know, the 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 Gene Kelly getting all of his clothes seen in uh in the film, or when when she's making the appeal to the gods, and there's and she's in the black and the yellow lights oh, are everywhere lights. i mean that would be an amazing music video right it'd be yeah. unbelievable music video instead yeah. it's this dumb scene right and i think it's uh it's kind of funny because um you know when they were appealing to gene kelly to do the movie he did not want to dance no no that's right he at first he refused he was like no i'm, not, I'm done with that i'm not going to do it and then he went into a room with Kenny Ortega, who we all know became a really mm -hmm. uh, well-known choreographer, Dirty Dancing, hello. Yep. Um, and after about a half hour, Gene Kelly came out and said, okay, <laughs> I see what the vision is. Okay. He choreographed the, uh, whenever you're, whenever you're away from me, that number. Whenever you, go, which was done later. That was done after was they one shot. Of the last scenes, yeah, that was yeah. one of the last scenes shot. Um, and he purposely made the choreography uh, almost match up with a scene that he did for me and my gal mm -hmm. with Judy Garland. Plus, Olivia Newton-John uh, famously said she had two left feet. And you can tell in some of the dancing sequences that she does. Um, he made it as simple as he could, but still made it look nice. And yeah, and, and, like and, a and Kelly choreographed number. Yeah, and that the when... In this film, as with anything that he does, it's his personality and his uh, the fact that he doesn't try to overshadow his co-star. He did the same thing in a way with Frank Sinatra when you saw him in like Anchors Away or on the Town. That you know Sinatra was not there for his dancing ability. He's there because yeah. he's freaking Frank Sinatra, right. like, who he could move, but like Kelly wasn't going to overshadow. It was like here. Come, it's almost like the yoga instructor who says, "Okay, we'll do, we'll adjust our lesson to what you can do, but I'll do it along with you with my 
you know, intensity. And therefore, you know, I think the only person who could keep up with Gene Kelly in any of his dance routines when he had the mouse Jerry dancing around with him on in anchors away. He, um, Donald O'Connor. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Good, good call. Good call. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, when you see a lot of the best stuff that he's done, um, certainly at American in Paris and singing in the rain and on the town, uh, when he's alone, he can just sort of let go. And it's great. To, and it's very, I mean, obviously one of the most famous clips of all time is, is, his you know the singing in the rain around the light pole and he's being athletic there i mean there's nothing dainty about his dancing there's nothing he's he very masculine athletic. he was a football player when he yeah. was younger yeah. and you could and you could tell i mean there's mm -hmm. it's one of the things that he's just he's one of my favorite movie stars of all time just mine too it, and I don't love everything he's done. I'm actually not a huge fan of American in Paris. Uh, oh, see, a, I love that. Oh my God. It's I, one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I sing in the rain is one of my favorite and I love on the town and what I love. I mean, look at obviously American in Paris is a good movie. I'm not saying it's, a, it's just some people will call that like his masterpiece. And I'm like, do you want, know there are other ones I like better than that. Right. I love on the town where and this was revolutionary when they did it, which is shooting musical on location. And there's all the great images of 1940s New York in color with Gene Kelly dancing. And it's, it's so visually startling that, and at the time, I mean, at the time it was like revolutionary. And now, to this day. I think it's funny with that movie. They only took the guys to New York. The girls did all the acting in the studio in Hollywood, but right. the guys were the ones who were going around actual New York City and, you know, shooting at uh, Rockefeller Center. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny in that last sequence of um, that scene, you see all the people up at the top mm -hmm. watching them. And it's just like, could you imagine in that year being like, Oh my God, I'm watching Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra do a scene in yeah. a movie. That's amazing. In person. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he would use that same sort of charisma doing the, uh, the scene with, with Olivia Newton John in the empty ballroom. And <laughs> again, it, with without trying to connect that to a narrative, we just said, do you want Olivia Newton John and Gene Kelly do a number? Here it is. Let's yeah. remove all context from it. Let's just, yeah. in a way, what music videos did was it's like, we can just give you dessert. And when and Xanadu was trying to be a Thanksgiving dinner and what it should have been was a trip to trip to the ice cream shop. Right. And, and, and I think this film, when you watch it in pieces works wonderfully. And then whenever Michael Beck shows up, you could go grab a drink, go to the bathroom. Now, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Michael Beck, but even you know that. But the the amazing thing about Michael Beck is they had it's a, Andy. It's no sentence could start with those words. But go ahead. Well, they had Andy Gibb in mind for. This. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he looks so much like Andy Gibb. Like he looks like the fifth BG Michael Beck. Like he could. You could insert him into. Yeah. Like he could stand in the background of a Bee Gees concert, and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's another Gibb brother." Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the 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 Zeppo of the uh, Gibbs. <laughs> <laughs> or the Gummo. Gummo never appeared in the movie. So yeah, he's the he's Gummo Gib. Yeah, Mike, poor Michael Beck. Um, mm. And well, <laughs> the thing I love about Xanadu is the combination of um, Xanadu and Can't Stop the Music is the mm. reason why the Raspberry Awards were yeah. 
created because the guy who created them sat through a double feature of those two movies back to back, which I can't even imagine being a guy (laughs) sitting in those two movies and being like, why did I do this? He said it was 99 cents and he didn't even ask for his money back. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Can't stop the music, by the way. Um, for those of you who don't know what it is, I know you know because you're yeah. Stacey Gatsoulias, but um, Can't Stop the Music was, the, there's there's no way to describe this film except to say, imagine if the Muppet movie was made, but instead of the Muppets, it was the village people. <laughs> it's like, we're going to go around and form the village people in this phony origin story. But because none of the, none of the um, village people could act, uh, the film stars, uh, and this was his name at the time, Bruce Jenner. Right. Um, it stars also stars Valerie Perrine, who people my age know her as Miss Tessmacher. Yes, in, in Superman. In Superman, the first woman that made a lot of people my age go, that dress is low, isn't it? And <laughs> uh, also featured a pre-Police Academy, pre-Diner, Steve Gutenberg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're in our. They they bought Gutenberg stock early, and my favorite detail of this film is the director. The director of Can't Stop the Music, the Village People origin movie. In to my knowledge, her only directorial credit, her only directorial credit, Nancy Walker. Right. <laughs> Best known for the Bounty commercials and playing Rhoda's mom. Yep. Directed that. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a Mad Lib you do on cocaine. Yeah. The Village <laughs> People star in a film with Bruce Jenner, Valerie Prine, Steve Gutenberg, directed by Nancy Walker. Like you would think it was made up. Like yeah, made- that's like, no, no, no. That, not all that weirdness can happen at once. Right. No. It, it feels like the world would, like, time and space would collapse on itself. Yeah. But again, <laughs> when you compare it to, I mean, this is one of the things that I think a film like Xanadu does survive longer because the elements are there. It's like you, you a delicious dessert buffet was made, but it was advertised as Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. So you go in there expecting Thanksgiving dinner and said, all right, these desserts are great, but where's the meal? And I think that the people who have discovered it have discovered it for what it truly was, which was a series of music videos made before there was an outlet for that. <laughs> That's what I always say about Rocky Four. It's one of the best long form music videos ever. <laughs> I have to tell you, I showed my kids the Rocky films. Okay, my kids loved the Rocky films, and mm-hmm. and and even you know, I was nervous about Rocky One because Rocky One's a pretty slow movie. I love it, but it's a it's a slow paced film. Um, but they loved it; they got it right away, and they loved Rocky Two, and they love. And when Mickey dies in Rocky Three, there was be- my my son Maddie when he was crying. There were tears the size of basketballs flowing down his face. Oh yeah, I was I was oh freaking wreck when mickey died oh my god in the theater totally embarrassed myself but you know i was only what eight seven at the time so (laughs) oh yeah i was 10 and i saw it and i was just bawling Mm -hmm. um and so i show them rocky four and i think they shot 30 minutes of original footage for rocky four it's a short movie i mean really and (laughs) it's the fight (laughs) all of it music video yeah, there, and there are all these montages of scenes from the previous two and including there's one scene where 
you know, Adrian chews out Rocky because that's her only role in the film at that point. And Wait, he goes on a drive. Brother, my brother and I used to do that scene. I would be Adrian. He would be Rocky. Okay. I would prefer I it if you flipped it. I would wish I you would flip it. No, I knew I did it word for word. I probably could still do it, but I won't. Mm. Um, because we watched that movie so much. We saw it in the theater. We saw it on New Year's Eve, 1985. Mm -hmm. And then when it came on HBO, we taped it and just watched it over and over and over and over and over again to the point where we had the whole dialogue, which wasn't much, again, because everything was, it was a long form music video. Um, but yeah, no, we, uh, yeah, the, there's no easy way out montage. Yeah, it's, it's okay. cool. that's when he's driving around and, and, and I'm watching the film. They're playing. In his there's fancy car. He's in his fancy car. They're playing. There's no easy way out. And they go back. And this must be the third montage in this film. And um, and they start doing it. My sub aide just bubbles under his breath. More clips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. There's that's the, the, there's about forty minutes of original footage in that film. Yeah. And about ten of it is a robot with Polly. Ah. Uh. That's, that's when they like. What do we do with Polly? <laughs> that's when you know we've run out of ideas. Give him a robot. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, now we were we were talking about Xanadu, and so let's get, I'm sorry. Let's get back on track. But what we what we like about it, and what like how we we know it's not a great movie, and we there are things about it that we know to make it not such a great movie. Mm -hmm. When I was watching it again last night, just because I wanted it fresh in my head. Um, okay. So I mentioned this earlier. Yeah. The mural mm -hmm. where the girls start dancing and they come out and Ooh, they, yeah. they come alive. Mm -hmm. alive. Oh, I know that scene. Sonny paints the mural, but we don't know that because they took that out of the movie. And then he mentions it in a throwaway line where he says, oh, I painted my friend's van. I painted someone's mural. And I never picked up on that. <laughs> nope. I didn't. In, in the hundred times that I've seen the movie. I picked up and, on that uh, 30 seconds ago when you just told me. So Sonny is the one that paints the mural. Which That's important. Make, <laughs> it would make more sense for her to come out of the mural and be his muse yeah. because he's the one who painted it. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's just how much the story meant in the editing process of this film. That, that yeah. major fact was left out. Like that would have been a big part of it, and it would you wouldn't even have needed that much footage. You could have just shown him painting in because there's that early montage of him trying to do things, and then he you know gets all upset and decides I'm not going to do this anymore because the story was. Um, you know, he was working for the record company, doing the replicas of the albums. Then he decided to freelance, but he couldn't decide what to do. And this is why Kira appears in his life, because he's lost all direction and he needs a muse. And I think if they had shown that he's the one that painted the mural, it would have made a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it would have. <laughs> You know, would have added the movie was what 96 minutes long. You add four more minutes. Ooh, it's a hundred minutes. Who cares? <laughs> like, or maybe cut down on some of the banter when he's at the painter studio, like maybe, maybe cut 30 seconds out of that. And, and that's the other thing. So he goes to the studio, you know, he apparently he had talked to the boss. So he's coming back. He's going to do the album covers again. Mm -hmm. Then he notices Kira on the nine sisters album and he's going to look for her. And inexplicably, he's wearing a completely different outfit when he goes to the beach. Yeah. He's wearing the uh, black satin jacket with a red t-shirt. Mm -hmm. And he's looking for her. Then he finds her. 
and she's skating away from him. He gets the motorcycle to chase her. So Who, that, when he asked the woman to take the motorcycle, mm -hmm. that's one. She's one of the muses. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and she said she was excited in the uh, the behind the scenes um, movie that she had a line. She was like, "Oh, you know, I wasn't just dancing in the movie. I actually had a line in the movie." They treated so him well all, back then. It's all nice and sunny. Okay, the, the so sun to is speak. Out, everyone's wearing skimpy outfits. And then when she goes up onto the dock and he follows her, suddenly it's cloudy. The dock is completely soaking wet. People are dressed like it's 40 degrees out. I'm like, where's the continuity? What happened here? Cocaine. <laughs> These are the stupid things that I notice when I watch movies, but that yeah. bugs me. And then obviously, I guess after he falls into the water chasing her and she goes back up into the sky laser back up yeah you know it's i mean it stands to reason that he'd wear a third outfit of the day but why was he wearing a second outfit to begin with <laughs> it makes no sense yeah. because you don't even realize it's the same day until he says it's the same day and you're like huh yeah how is it the same day <laughs> i know i know but this is this is what i was trying to say that this is the connective tissue every time you're doing exactly what i said anytime anyone trashes the film they're talking about the connective tissue between the songs the right. plot the michael beck scenes mm -hmm. okay nobody went to the theater a few people went to the theater they say oh when does it start well throw the money down i'm here to see michael beck and throw mm -hmm. it down and you're there to see olivia newton john and gene kelly and hear elo songs and michael yep. beck is gummo gib who just happens to you know this poor guy who has the, one of the by the way one of the weirdest careers in hollywood history but you know all the scenes that anytime you talk about what sucks in this film these are the scenes that suck yeah and that's it's kind of like when you don't fight what the film should have been and you just focus on the dessert tray then it's fun but if you tr if you focus on this like if you take two seconds to say okay this is a guy who's a painter and makes a great living painting murals of rock albums and has time to paint in his own studio that's a like a life that a painter would ask a genie for Mm -hmm. You know, if he was going and he was working at like Dunder Mifflin or wherever and and, and, and he couldn't paint because of that, right. then that I understand. But like, oh, man, I'm stuck working at this job where I have to paint and make lots of money. Wait, why is he complaining? And, you know, this goes to show it's being, you know, it's it's being made by people who are like, you know, do aren't really working for a living at this point like oh this must be a horrible job and and again it's the it's that that sort of for the lack of a better word that sort of disingenuous oh don't do things for the money sentiment that they throw into some of these films they did that like crazy in the sergeant pepper movie in a film that is so clearly a gigantic money grab it's like this right. whole film exists about about just grabbing the money and not art. So, oh, I got to be true to my art. Really? In Xanadu? Is there, is there a, a story you're dying to tell here, Michael Beck? Well, I really think that they hired him because he looks like Andy Gibb. I, it wasn't you, because of his acting ability. It was because he looks like Andy Gibb. <laughs> no, I think you're 100% right. I think you're He could be an Andy Gibb stand-in mm -hmm. when they were shooting the Sgt. Pepper there are, film. There are certain scenes in that movie where you even are like, whoa, 
because it, it he looks so much like him it's crazy i'll, I'll but, tell you the shot which is during the 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 finale in the xanadu they they you know Olivia, and by the way, as if there are any eyes that aren't on Olivia during that whole end scene. We'll get to that in a minute. But at one point, she kind of gives like a little, you know, how do you do wave while she's singing? And they have a very strange, awkward cutaway to um, uh, to Michael Beck, sort of sm- giving this sort of toothy smile, like, yeah, I'm still here, as if, you know, to remind everyone he was in the movie. But... Uh, but yeah, in that in that shot, he looks so much like I. Just thinking of that shot now, he looks so much like a Gib. Mm-hmm. That was uh, that was probably in the casting call. Like, yeah. But but another connection with him is that uh, he was the star of the Warriors. Yes. And the same producer, Lawrence Gordon, produced the Warriors who produced this picture. So he was like, you know, you can't get Gib, get me back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the movie for people who haven't seen the movie. So we're, we've been talking about how Olivia Newton-John is one of the nine muses. And sure. um, in the movie, her name is Kira, mm-hmm. but she's actually, um, her real name is uh, Terpsichore. Of course. Which is the delight in dancing muse. Now the connection here, which I think is really, really cool. Um, this is kind of based off a movie from the forties. Where reader, reader, really, Rita Hayworth played <laughs> uh, that same muse, and Gene Kelly, not in the same movie, but in a different movie, played a Danny McGuire, which is who he plays in Xanadu. Right, right. And in the movie where he played Danny McGuire, he co-starred with Rita Hayworth. So there's a whole bunch of connecting things. So it's almost like a remake of a movie from the '40s, but not quite because there's roller disco and all this yeah. other stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so she comes out of the sky. She becomes Sonny's muse. She also in turn helps Gene Kelly's character. Who's been kind of in a funk for what? 35 years after his 1940s club shut down. And they decide to open a club together, which of course becomes Xanadu. And I just, God, I wish this movie was better <laughs> than it is. But I love it for what it is. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, that last sequence, you know, I, when I was watching last night um, and your girl was dancing in front of the mirror, <laughs> your muse oh, was yeah. dancing in front of the mirror. Yeah. yeah. One of my, the, 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 the absolute sexiest of the muses at one point, um, I, she, she's, she's one. And the first one who walks out of the mural and does yes. her whole sort of throwing her head around and the massive mop of hair in that, in that loose fitting, uh, flowing muse oh, costume. Well, okay. she Wait, was, let's talk about, let's talk about that. So we talked about the mural, how we should have known from the jump that Sonny is the one who paints the mural. Yeah. So the beginning of the movie is Sonny's like giving up on his freelance career. He throws a bunch of paper in the air and it floats and this and that, and it goes to the mural and the nine muses awaken in the mm-hmm. mural. Mm-hmm. They're all lit up with uh, a glow around them. Right. And uh, you know, the first, I think Olivia is the last one that wakes up right in the mural. I believe. Yeah. I yeah. And then she, they, they're, they're all dancing around and then she is, they, they have the close up of her as a painting and then she becomes, uh, then she becomes alive and does the whole like, Oh, I'm so stunned, you know, just sort of holding her, 
hands up to her face like what is happening i can't believe i'm alive and um and then they all dance around and there's the the african-american one with her head up but she looks like a teletubby is dancing around and then you know the the one where they do the close-up was like oh i can't believe you know the mm-hmm. you know like and she takes her hand they do the ring around the rosy oh, thing that's Okay, so I, I spoke earlier about how Olivia Newton-John really couldn't dance, and that shows it, because the rest of the muses are dancing around where she's really running around, and they're kind of pulling her and doing things to help her, but she's not doing her own dancing and ballet and spinning thing like the rest of the muses. No. So that's your first clue that she really can't dance that well. No. <laughs> so the muses all run around to different places, and then Kira appears with her glow as Sonny is lamenting the loss of his freelance career and he's trying to figure out what to do. He's walking along the beach. She crashes into him, kisses him, and then disappears. And he's like, what? (laughs) And thus begins Sonny trying to figure out who this woman is. Because, I mean, obviously, if a woman appears out of nowhere, kisses you, and then disappears, it is strange. Yeah. Unless you're on cocaine, and then it's not strange. Yeah, this is, is, again, this is how these things are done. Now, uh, earlier... um, I will just say I'm a I'm a very big yellow fan and the I'm alive number is my favorite part of the movie. Okay. I th- it's my favorite song in the movie. Uh I think it wonderfully tells everyone folks we're not about to make a normal movie here. <laughs> Especially at one point when they're they're like they become laser beams, they're sort of flying around, one's just running across a clearly like rear projected Hollywood sign and the letters are lighting up. The clouds are zooming around like Koyana Scotsy. It's completely bananas. And it's to say, folks, if you're thinking you're going to see a normal narrative film, this is, this is not happening. This is no. And, and and they they should always have when she becomes, when the, the Olivia Newton, John character zooms back and roller skates and kisses Michael Beck, um, they should almost turn to the camera and said, folks, if you didn't like that, feel free to go. <laughs> if you dug this, stick around. But if, right. this, if this is not for you, we get it. We get it. Right. This, this should have been like the sample plate, you know, at, at Trader Joe's. Like, just give it a try. Yeah. If you like this, you're going to love what you're going to see. If you don't, no offense taken. And I, I love that. I think that I love how, you know, they didn't build up to wacko-ness. They just started like, that's just. Oh, right away. And the muses are just there. I mean, I'll say it. They're all so freaking sexy. And, and, and just the way that the, the clothes were flowing around and their hair is flying around. They're doing the ring around the rosy thing. They're doing anything to show that Olivia Newton-John can't dance. And that, like, the two of them run along the beach and they become laser beams that fly to the sky. I mean, it is that's so... What pushed, you know, that's what pushed the budget up so high. They said it was really expensive for them to make the muses glow. Yeah. And the the the... Two producers, the Greenbergs, who produced the visual effects, went on to become uh, Oscar-nominated special effects uh, producers who also worked with Joel Silver uh, later on Predator. That was they, they one of the huge films. They did a lot of like a lot of very big, high-profile where they did a lot of the the laser effects on a lot of big-budget films, including Flash Gordon was another one they worked on. Right, and so and the effects work on that. Is great and it's great because it's not realistic. It doesn't. It's not supposed to look realistic. And I think, exactly. I think that there's sometimes. I was hearing someone talk about this on another show when they were talking about movie musicals. But I think it, it relates to this. I think that sometimes we put too much stock onto, 
realism in film being super important. Like, ah, oh, would that really happen? Ah, that's not what that would really look like. Which is why I enjoy sometimes when a film just goes bananas and says, we know. <laughs> we know that's not what it really looks like. That's and probably why they didn't have the scene of Sonny painting the mural. They wanted to start it with, this is what you're getting. Yeah. This is the kind of movie you're going to be watching for the next 90 minutes. So, And do you know what? I'll, I'll, take, I'll take it even a step back is when they... They, they redid the Universal Picture logo at the beginning. And the way, and at the time, like the Universal, they, they, they fly through space and you know, you'd see Earth and you'd say Universal and MCA Company. But the old-timey ones, like back during the Abbott and Costello years and everything, it would be a plane flying around the, the Earth. And so they did the old-time one with the plane flying around the Earth. And, but each lap... The plane gets more like it becomes the Concorde, and then it becomes like a f- spaceship at the end or a flying like saucer. A flying saucer yeah. yeah, and it, it was to say, all right, folks, A, you're going to, this is different, right from the beginning, even before the I'm Alive scene. Yeah. And we're good, you're going to see something that's going to harken back to old musicals, but is takes place at a different time. Mm-hmm. And we were singing the praises of other Gene Kelly films. When you stop and think, this film does have a kinship with Singing in the Rain because Singing in the Rain was a bunch of songs. I don't think any of those songs were written for the movie. I think they were all standards. Or like they were right, all- yeah, they were all things that had already been done. I mean, Singing in the Rain, the original movie was what, 1929 or something like that? Well, I, yeah, whatever the, what the, I don't know the exact, but the, all the songs were, were staples. And, mm-hmm. um, and so they basically- strung it along well in that case they actually had a decent screenplay they had directors who cared and so it became a great classic Natural story yeah they did the characters you cared about great supporting actors um and so that that sense it worked but in a way it's sort of saying we're going to do something like an old time thing but for today and so right from the beginning it's saying you're going to experience something that is that is quite different and uh even the biggest critics of this film, the ones who said Xana don't and all this other stuff, um, none of them could walk away from this saying this film didn't feel original. (laughs) You know, you know, and, and, and that is one of the things that I find fascinating about that whole slew of how do we ape the success of Saturday Night Fever in Greece? I mean, you don't walk away from Flash Gordon or Sergeant Pepper or Can't Stop the Music or The Jazz Singer or this film. I'm sure I'm missing another one. You mentioned Urban Cowboy, which I think is a better, I think that's an actual yeah, movie. Urban Cowboy was actually... That's an yeah. actual movie. I mean, whether or not you like the film, it was, it, there was an actual movie in that. But yes, it right. was trying to uh, build on the, the soundtrack part of it. But mm-hmm. um, they all were unique experiences, whether or not the unique, the unique doesn't, is not synonymous for good. Good, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you you don't walk out of those films going, man, now it's just like a duh, typical film. Like, no, no, George Burns usually doesn't typically cover Beatles songs. Well, like, you know, Gene Kelly said about the movie, he said the concept was marvelous, but it just didn't come off. Well, they also didn't have a they, The director kept complaining we don't have a script. I mean, again, when, I mean, it is dangerous when you write on the fly. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. in a big budget film with Joel Silver in a wading pool full of cocaine, you know. <laughs> I kept thinking of that scene in Witness where they where they release the 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 silo, the grain, and it 
covers the dude. Do you, do you know that? that and, oh yes, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. I just that's what Joel Silver's apartment looked like, except that was coke just falling on him the whole way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into the soundtrack because, yeah, yeah. as we've mentioned numerous times, it's good. It's great. And so you said "I'm Alive" is your favorite. Yeah, I think it's. It's. I love that song. I think it's a great ELO song. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly the song I listen to, have listened to most. No offense to "Don't Walk Away," which is in all over the world, but uh, um, "I'm Alive" is just a great song, and I think it's, I think it's so ballsy to start the movie with a song that is so on the nose, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and um, but but works with this is what you're going to experience. Um, if ELO came out with a song called I'm Alive and that was a music video for it, I mean, wouldn't that just be the greatest music video you ever saw? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, I keep thinking about, I, I know I keep bringing this one up because it could be my favorite music video, but it's like the, the, the take on me, which we all were blown away by when we saw it. We now we're a little jaded because we understand some of the rotoscope technology, but at the time it's like, wait, was it, did they draw it? Did they shoot it? What did they do? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like we, like when the black or white video came out from Michael Jackson and, and our heads exploded when it came out. Now it's like, okay, every other movie has this, but when it first came out or the dire straits with the, the, the the, oh, money the money for nothing one. Would we look at that now? That looks like Atari. But when it came out, I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is so cool." Yeah, I hear it's computer, and yeah. uh, but um, yeah, this the number itself is just the song is great. The number is great. The women are just are the women, not just that they're super beautiful, but the way that they flow and the clothes flow and their hair, everything just it seems otherworldly, and they're slowed down just enough that it was. You know, it's not a proper speed, so it does. It feels a little otherworldly, and then they get the laser beams around them. They're zapping around. I mean, it's just it's fabulous, and, and uh, I, that's my favorite part. Of, that's my favorite part of the movie. It's my favorite song in the movie. It's my favorite number in the movie, uh, with the possible exception of the ending, with just the all the those skaters and and everything. So that I mean, that's just that's just bonkers but the i mean it was a good that is a good way to end the film that finale yeah 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 but uh yeah the, let's go some of the other songs there because you mentioned magic was that was the huge hit of the from mm-hmm. the from the soundtrack yeah now the rest of the songs just so everyone knows because they did release most of the songs mm-hmm. um so by the time the movie came out in august 1980 magic was the number one song mm-hmm. it stayed number one for four weeks and the week of August 9th, which is the week the movie came out, All Over the World and I'm Alive were sitting at number 43 and 44 on the Hot 100. Mm-hmm. And Xanadu, the title track, had made its debut on the Hot 100 at 79 that week. It would eventually get up to number eight on the Hot 100, mm-hmm. um, but it hit number one in the UK and in a few other European countries. Um, suddenly was released later in 1980. It hit 20 on the Hot 100 in January of 81. Don't Walk Away was released, but it didn't chart in the States. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I mean, see, I, it's funny because that was a song that would be playing on our on our car when we were driving around Europe. <laughs> so That's it was actually a, the song that was stuck in my head before. It's a great song. Up. Yeah. Um, I see, see, I never see, you know, a lot about the charting stuff more than me. So I, I'm sometimes stunned, like, like, like when the queen movie came out a few years ago 
And they're like, did you know that this song never charted in America? Going, oh, really? I didn't know that. I thought that was one of their big hits. And so there's like, uh, um, like I think it was "I Want to Be Free" by the by Queen, or one, or it may have been um, Radio Gaga. One of the ones that I just thought was a massive hit. Apparently, was not a huge hit in America because they didn't show it on MTV, and that was something I didn't know until the the Queen movie came out a couple of years ago. I, I never know which the hits are, or which are not. Mm -hmm. You know, with the exception, you know, there were other songs that weren't released. And see, one of my favorite things. Okay, so. Uh, when Sonny Malone and Danny McGuire meet up, um, Danny McGuire gets this idea in his head to open a club because he wants to open a club again and he wants Sonny to be involved. When Sonny finally finds Kira, she's at the, what is it, the Pan Pacific Auditorium? Yeah, is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, the Pan Pacific, uh, I think I have it here somewhere here. Uh, it's on my, I, that sounds right, but I'll find out for sure here. Uh, it was an auditorium that was at the time that Xanadu was filmed, it was in disrepair. And you can tell in the movie, like they didn't make it look like that for the movie. It actually was like that. It was a big place in the forties and fifties. And then, you know, people stopped using it. Um, but there's a line in the movie when Sonny takes Danny McGuire to the place, he goes, Oh, they used to have wrestling here. And they actually did have wrestling in that place. Ah, Okay. So, so Sonny brings him to that place and there's that forties, band against 80s band mm -hmm. mashup yeah, it was a mashup yeah that's ever done in the history of music and i didn't appreciate it the first time i saw the movie but now that i'm older and see what and i can see what went into making that number with both the songs having to mesh well enough for them to work together for the sets to mesh the way they made the bandstand for the 40s and the rock band from the 80s literally get put together they built two stages the 40s band was on the white stage the 80s band was on the black stage and then at the end of the six minute number they mixed together so they're all together i love that number i think that number is probably one of the best musical numbers ever yeah <laughs> just the technical stuff behind making it work the way that it did I appreciate it a lot more than I did the first time I saw the movie. I think appreciate's the right word for that because, uh, again, I I've appreciated it ever from the beginning because I know when you have two, just the the physical production of that must have been so arduous. It's never been one of my favorite parts of the movie. I just think I just it could be that I just didn't care for the music, or it could be that I find the rest of it to be so much fun. Uh, it was one of these things that I, I appreciate how hard that was to do, but I, I, I it's not, I mean, I, I get so much more pleasure out of the I'm Alive and out of the, the Don Bluth sequence, which I just think is when the film just explodes into a, a, a cocaine haze of insanity. <laughs> now, I think, what was I reading about him? That he, I think he was out of work and then he did this. Yeah. That this, that, cartoon sequence for don't walk away yeah that john bluth did basically um he had left disney yes and then he did xanadu and then his um production company did the secret of nim what i what i know i you are the aficionado of this but what i remembered about the chronology bluth was a disney animator and he wanted to go off on his own and mm -hmm. he was trying to get the secret of nim off the ground and was having trouble and he needed right. to have some other new credit or something to 
give him some uh, some credibility beyond his time working at Disney. And a, I'm assumed, coked out of his mind, Joel Silver called him and yeah. said, "We need." I came up with the idea, we need to have an animated, of course we do. Of course we have to have an animated scene in the middle of this. Uh, just I mean, a, pure, a pure Disney, you know, and this was the same year that 9 to 5 came out, remember, where they had the Lily Tomlin Disney scene. But with, that worked because they were high. Yeah, they, they were high, and it also was their fantasy, and it was also hysterical to see Lily Tomlin basically has Snow White with all the, the 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 chirping birds from Song of the South landing on her shoulder while she's plotting to murder Dabney Coleman. I mean that's I mean that's the but in and, and that also wasn't a huge the, the difference between making an animated bird land on Lily Tomlin's shoulder and making a whole animated sequence where you know they you, the animation in nine to five worked, but it wasn't as ambitious as this and if i'm not mistaken they they didn't have a lot of time to do this animation no they had for the amount of animation they had to do and to have it be at the level that it was and the quality Mm -hmm. that it was to have it be anything beyond a flip book you show someone was insane Mm -hmm. and but bluth needed the job as much as silver needed to have his latest cocaine feuds fused fantasy come to life and i just i remember i'm thinking back to my my old girlfriend heidi showing this to me sitting on her bed watching xanadu um and uh i think that was the moment i just just said what the f is happening in this movie (laughs) but but at the same time i didn't because i was so joyful that it was like do you want nothing needs to make sense Nothing right. makes sense. And we established that from the beginning. And um, it's funny. I'm going to use a, an 80s film that um, managed to straddle the having a hit song and being a blockbuster. And that was uh, Ghostbusters. Hmm. And the early drafts of Ghostbusters had the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man show up very early in the film. And Ramis, Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman convinced Aykroyd, no, we have to build up to it. The beginning has to be hauntings that we're kind of familiar with, like the ghost in the library or something. And then it has to build up to that. We have to build up to the state puff marshmallow. So by the time you see him walking up Columbus Circle, the audience is in your hands and they love it. This mm-hmm. film opens with a state puff marshmallow. Man. <laughs> it's just, so this is what you got. We're just going to start with, this is start with stay puffed. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and the, the animation that Don Bluth did in that is, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's really, it, I mean, it has the style of Disney, but it also has his own personal style, which you later saw in the, the five old, what was it? Uh, oh, American, American tale, tale, which he, uh, which he did in land before time when he finally had his, you know, big breakout hits mm-hmm. and um of which you saw his personal style plus the disney influence and you saw that like crazy in this and uh, you know you almost wish that i mean the whole movie was animated no <laughs> no you wish that they 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 turned this into almost like a fantasia where you know fantasia did have a through line it was just these vignettes Right, and you you wish that it was like that. They, they, there was no attempt to create a through line in Fantasia, other than when they showed the um, the the conductor. 
Right. And then here's the next thing. And and then you have, you, know, you have the one part where Mickey runs over the cut. Congratulations, Mr. Starkowski. Congratulations to you, Mickey. Okay, so long. And then he runs off. <laughs> Um, but then they show the dinosaur scene, and then they show the the night on Bald Mountain, and then they show the 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 crocodiles and the hippos doing ballet and all that stuff. And there's no one left Fantasia, thinking, man, that story didn't make sense. Right. <laughs> right. And I I kind of wished that this film embraced that inner Fantasia. Right. That if this just was, I mean, again, I know I'm hitting this note a bunch of times, but there was no place for music video high budget music videos in 1980 because they hit pay dirt with grease that they thought well we got to give it a through line we got to give it a story um i think that works against it man this could be the best this could have been like i never thought of the fantasia connection until just now but i mean that's kind of what this film should have been mm-hmm. and to end i mean the ending I don't mean to jump to the ending, but the ending is kind of what the rest of the film should have been. Right. Which was, we start with Gene Kelly and everyone roller, roller skating, roller and this mm-hmm. massive sea of people, and then some people dressed as zoot suits, and some people are dressed in this, and some people are on a freaking trapeze, and they got a woman spinning around, and then, and now they're all in cowboy costumes, they're dancing around the cowboy stuff, and now she's dressed, like, now they're just in space stuff, and if, you know, it, it just keep throwing stuff at us. That's right. what we want. I think that that's, I wish, the, you know, the f- film ends on such a high note. Oh, of course, it actually ends on the dopey, hey, can I want to talk to you as a waitress at the end? Well, thank God they didn't play that whole conversation because I'm sure it would have been horrible. I think it was. Just keep talking while they're rolling camera. Um, right. <laughs> you know yeah. we're never going to talk again, right? Because I'm, I'm going to write big hit songs and you're going to be in one or two movies and then be an extra on Nash Bridges or something. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I would almost love to see an edit, you know, how some people do fan edits of stuff. Um, I would almost like to see an edit of Xanadu where they just cut Michael Beck out and just put the numbers together. What happened? Now, if I knew how to do that, I would try and do it. I know how to do it, but I have other stuff I'm trying to do in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, what are, Paul, what are you doing? Are, are you are you working towards your teacher certificate? No, 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 no. I'm doing a fan edit of Xanadu. Now, I will say that I think that Don't Walk Away was the perfect song for the animated part of the movie. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I also think that All Over the World was perfect for the Gene Kelly montage Mm -hmm. of him trying on all those crazy outfits and all those weirdos running around that store in Beverly Hills. It was an actual store in Beverly Hills that they used. I think Magic was the perfect when they were alone in in the roller skating in the auditorium. Yep. I, the the fusion of music with visuals in this film is not the problem. I mean, right? No. Nope. <laughs> I'm alive is extraordinary. The Xanadu at the end, you know. Tempted acting that brings the story down. Xanadu. Xanadu. Do make the X thing there. Yeah. yeah, I kind of wish that Drum Dreams, which is the song that's played in that part when Xanadu first opens, and you have the jugglers with the bowling pins, and your girl is dancing in front of the oh mirror. God, she's so great. Like, I wish that was actually on the soundtrack, because mm-hmm. um, I love that number. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, it, it was a B-side. I think the lead-in to the Xanadu and the medley and all that stuff that was happening in the club, yeah. um, like you said, it was a good way to end the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the ending... 
you know, where Kira is allowed to come back. And I guess she comes back as someone else because she's not Kira, but she looks like Kira. And I guess they're hinting towards her and Sunny getting together at some point in the future. And I was, oh, uh, suspended in time also, uh, where Kira is in that realm (laughs) with the orange lights and, you know, uh, where Sunny tries to bring her back because she leaves because she's amused. She's not supposed to fall in love with Sunny, but she somehow, for some unknown reason, because he's really not charismatic, falls in love with Sunny. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Michael Beck. I'm sorry. No, no, no. This, 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 he knows it. <laughs> God. Oh, yeah. I just, I mean, I actually think maybe the movie would have worked with Andy Gibb. <laughs> oh, yeah. At least he would have had some charisma. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, let's not even discuss the whole cocaine and Andy Gibb and him dying no. early because it's like, you yeah. know, I loved Andy Gibb when I was younger. Like, everyone oh. did. Everyone did. Everyone loved everyone named Gibb. There we yeah. Go. No, but, uh, yeah. God, I remember, you know, because even by the time he passed away in early 88, you know, he hadn't really been around. I know he was trying to make a comeback. And even when I found out that he passed away, I was in eighth grade at the time and I was just devastated. Like, oh, mm. uh, you know, and just thinking about like how different would his life have been if he was in Xanadu and if, say, he was in it and actually made it where Xanadu was actually a bigger hit than it was. <laughs> and but he still went on to host or maybe he wouldn't have hosted Solid Gold because then no. it would have been like, oh, Andy Gibb can do movies. Yeah, you know? he would have had a career. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's-, yeah, that's a strange parallel universe we live in. Well, yeah. Wow. Interesting to think about. Um, I tell you, you know, along those lines, I often think about Neil Diamond um, mm. because he can't act, and he's been very, very vocal about his performance, especially up against uh, Lawrence Olivier doing, uh, uh, God, his rabbi. You know what they were thinking about yeah. casting Lawrence Olivier in that film was like, look at. Obviously, he's going to say no, but let's offer to him, and then we'll, then we'll just call Fiverr and call it a day, because right. that's why we have Fiverr is right. to play this part. And, um, and then Olivier says, Olivier says yes, and and you know, uh, the Neil Diamond's this balding forty year old man saying, "Dad, it's really time for me to leave home." Like, yeah, it is. You're a forty year old man, and um, all of his acting scenes. You almost see him looking down if he's standing on the right spot. You know, he just doesn't know what he's doing. But every time yeah. he's performing and singing, he's spectacular. He's Neil Diamond. Oh, sure. And I kind of wish someone cast him in a film where he wasn't the star. He was able to build his, you know, learn his way, learn the ropes. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have all this pressure on him. You know, yeah, that's a lot of, pr- that was a lot of pressure. Uh, there was a major motion picture that yeah. came out that he had to carry as an actor. Right. And I yeah. think if he had built, I mean, look, I'm not going to call Madonna a great actress or anything, but she's, she's best when she is in a film like League of Their Own or Desperately Seeking Susan, where she, or even Dick Tracy, where she's in small doses where she does exactly what she does. She does it well and leaves the heavy lifting to Rosanna Arquette or Gina Davis or whomever it is in the film. Um, and, or, you know, Warren Beatty or whatever. I think that Neil Diamond probably could have been that if they didn't throw him into the deep end without a life preserver. Really? I mean, Neil Diamond, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but Neil Diamond starring in that movie and being like, yeah, was like me getting a Brazilian wax for the first time I ever got a bikini wax. 
I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> I mean, talk about that. I mean, that's not even diving into a pool. That is diving into the Mariana Trench. Just yeah, <laughs> yeah, covered in chum. You know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. If they, I mean, and I think of like Flash Gordon, like another one, like all these Flash Gordon starred Sam J. Jones. If that had starred an actor who could act, mm-hmm. you know, like if Kurt Russell playing that part, that would have been incredible. I know they tried right. to get Kurt Russell at one point, you know, someone who could, you know, knows what to do when the camera's pointed at him. You know, oh, I mean, he's been acting since he's a kid. Yeah. Or like, you know, the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton, not thespians. You know, right. and then this one you get Olivia Newton-John and 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 you know you get Olivia Newton-John and you have Gene Kelly and then Michael Beck. Right, but you know people even criticized Olivia Newton-John's acting. I mean, she lost out on the Razzie to Brooke Shields because thank God the Blue Lagoon came out the same time. Yeah, but I think that's unfair though. I think that's that's lumping her in because I think that she. She did what she needed to do in this film. And tell, exactly. tell me during that end sequence where she's in that pantsuit looking amazing. Oh, yeah. Best she's ever looked. And and like, and like it's almost as if the rest of the film was like, you're going to keep her eyes so much that you won't even notice these jugglers and everything. This is the thing. We're doing all these things to distract you. And you still can't keep your eyes off her. I mean, no, I think that's unfair. I think this is, that's dogpiling on a film that was unsuccessful, but I think that, I think she does, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, we, we talked about the ending of this film, having that lame, she's a waitress at the end as you have this wild fantasy thing. And then you end it with such a clunker and a thud. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about what was the big hit film she did before this, which was, which was Greece, which ends with what well, the car can fly at the end. The car's going to fly. Like, why not? Well, Just why now, not? There's a fan theory that they're dead. <laughs> At the end sure. of Greece, and that's why they float up. And sure, stuff. like it was all like she actually drowned in the beginning of the movie when they're at the beach, Love and it. the whole movie is like Love a, it. like her uh, about to go to heaven, like a like, and he couldn't save her or something. So you have to be a slut to get to heaven, I guess. Is the lesson in Greece? Is that it? Apparently, right. apparently, Make- in pants that you have to be sewn into. Yes. All right. Um, well, let's just briefly talk about the fact that okay, do you miss? movie soundtracks as much as i do yes yes Yes. in fact you look at my i'm holding up my iphone right here so much of my music selection are soundtracks both symphonic and the soundtracks with with songs on both of them that that used to be a huge part of my life Mm -hmm. is movie soundtracks keep in mind one reason why they were a big part of our lives was that we now have access to the movies at the drop of a hat a lot of times the soundtracks were there because you couldn't watch the movie on the drop of a hat, but you listen to the music to remind you of it. I used to yep. listen to the like Star Wars and Raiders and Superman and and ET and all these soundtracks I grew up loving. Star Trek the Motion Picture and Wrath of Khan and all that. I used to listen. To I had yeah, I had the Star Trek the Motion Picture album with the 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 <laughs> the, the, the the Spock, Ilya, and Kirk with the the sort of the the was it transport beams sort of the 
bright colors going over that. Yeah, beautiful poster. Mm -hmm. I had that poster in my room. Yeah. But yeah, and and but like soundtrack, you know, but, I had the double album of Greece, I had the tape of Greece, I had Saturday Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever. Yep. And and um and then when you said films in the eighties where it was where there was like a thousand hit songs, like the, the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack was one that was because you know, I was a huge Pointer Sister fan, but they also had you know the Heat Is On and and they had the Neutron Dance and they had the Patty LaBelle uh, Stir It Up. Um Oh, and Axel F. Axel F. Yeah, well, that's how big movie soundtracks go. That this Axel F became a hit, and then you had the Ghostbusters soundtrack, the Back to the Future soundtrack, and inevitably there'd be only like two hit songs. The rest would be some clunkers, but and which would yeah. be on how? Why is that the soundtrack? Because you know, Marty McFly pulls up in a car and it's playing on the radio for two seconds. He turns it off. There are all these ways they could sneak. Gonna go back in time. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> the ways he could sneak some lousy f songs in it. But um, yeah, that was a big part. You know, and I was never a big Dirty Dancing fan. Again, that's no. They didn't say roll camera. This is for you, Sully. But yeah, no, um, that's, a, that's a girl movie. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely a girl movie. But everyone heard that soundtrack and Footloose and both of them. They had two soundtracks. They had Dirty Dancing and more Dirty Dancing because they had so many songs in that movie that they had to make two soundtracks. Well, they did the same thing with Batman. They had the the Prince album, they had the Danny Elfman album. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they may have done that with Footloose, if I'm not mistaken. There's another movie like that where there was so many, like there was so much music on it, it like spilled over. But yeah. Well, speaking of Footloose, how I do my weekly countdowns on Twitter. 1984 was either a week ago or two weeks ago, and there were three or four songs from the uh, from the Footloose soundtrack in the top 40 at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's how movie soundtracks, certain movie soundtracks were in the 80s. And the countdown that I'm going to do next week for 1987, there's two or three songs from Beverly Hills Cop 2 but on, on that countdown. Beverly Hills Cop 2 or Beverly Hills Cop as well? Two, because uh, it's 1987. I'm okay, yeah, because that that was a shakedown, right? Breakdown, shakedown, takedown. Um, yep. And I want your sex was on that soundtrack. I don't, I don't, I don't remember that. Uh -huh. um, but the the thing is, is that because the movies themselves are so quickly applicable, that there are things like not just with soundtracks, but also things like the tie-in, like novelization, or there would be Star Wars cards, or Star Wars storybooks, or all these things that would be there to remind you of the movie when now you can just have the movie and so i think it makes why i think it makes what made soundtracks for our generation and the previous generation so important is not doesn't have that same vitality you know mm -hmm. i'm thinking of ghostbusters I, I can't watch it obviously because it's, i'm not at a movie theater but you know or i'm not sitting in front of my tv but i'm taking a walk i'm listening I mean, it's, it's a way to make the film accessible again and, and music was different back then anyway. I mean, you had TV theme songs that were on the charts and mm -hmm. um, like even last night's countdown, I did 1981 and the theme from greatest American hero was yeah. number seven, I think on the countdown that <laughs> in that week. I think, in 1981. I think the last time you saw a movie soundtrack become such a gigantic part of pop culture. Um, I could be wrong about this, but it may have been Titanic. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's probably so. there's probably one I'm missing that I'm not thinking about, but where what I was saying before, the, you know, how I was saying what they wanted to do with Greece, which was, and with Greece and Saturday Night Fever, what they wanted to do with this sort of turn into that snowball that the appeal of the song makes you think of the movie, the movie makes you think of the song, sort of 
snowballs like that. And it certainly happened with the bodyguard with I Will Always Love You. Uh, oh, yeah. But I remember the year that Titanic was in the theater and the Celine Dion song was such a massive hit. And even the symphonic, there was a part of the, the soundtrack that made, like the symphonic soundtrack that made the hit the charts. That mm -hmm. kind of that fed into, oh, her heart must go on. I got to see the movie. So the movie got to listen to heart goes on. And that, you know, that, that sort of turned it into this, this snowball falling down an Alp. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember the last time that's happened in that the all of pop cult, not not sort of like niche markets, but it became like everywhere. Right. And yeah. I, I, there, really there may be one, like one that that seems like it was probably the last one where it was that massive. Mm hmm. And, yeah. Because, I mean, it's not the same now. Like, as you said, you can I was talking to someone about this. You know, we used to have to go to the record store to buy a record. We'd have to wait for it to be released. Sometimes people would wait in line waiting for the record store to open just so they could get the album because it was such a big deal to get the album. I remember when Verses by Pearl Jam came out. I was stuck in school. I said to my mom, could you go to Tower Records and pick it up for me on the day that it was released? Um, now, an album is released at midnight. You go to Spotify two seconds later and you can listen to the whole thing. Yeah, and there's, I, and and there 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 are good parts and bad parts to that. I mean, the one I mean, you have more people getting access to stuff, which is great, mm -hmm. it's really great. I do sometimes miss the that sense of anticipation, anticipation and sometimes the sense of the the scavenger hunt looking for stuff. Like yeah. I remember, like when Stranger Things came out on Netflix about was that three years ago, whatever that was. And there was all this talk about oh this great thing and I'm like oh man I can't wait to oh I can watch it now if I want it's right here it's it's, it's in my pocket you know right. all I have to do is lift my thumb and lower it now on the one hand it's great it gives a lot of people access to stuff and then something like Tiger King came out and everyone was watching Tiger King you know it it was not like oh god where do I find Tiger King there it's there we all have it right. just click um, and there's a lot to be said for that. I don't think anyone's going to turn back time and, and want to go back to it. But that sense of waiting in line for Return of the Jedi or waiting in line for the new Talking Heads album to come out or, you know, my brother and I are big comic book dorks. And so like when the, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths and Batman Dark Knight Returns was coming around that same time. It's like, oh, the new issue is coming out. Let's or even waiting in line for concert tickets because Ticketmaster was that blockbuster. Yeah. You had to outside of blockbuster you know, or, or you know waiting you know how do you get tickets for the ball game you, you you wait in line and you know you know i mean fenway was always harder to get tickets than say candlestick candlestick when we moved to candlestick to the bay area it was just walk up and say two please because candlestick <laughs> always had there was always good seats available but um but yeah, that's uh, I do miss that. But that's us being fogies because I'm sure there's stuff that we had that was rapid fire that the people, the generation before us, were like, "Ah, you kids, you can watch your VCRs." We had to wait yeah, for the. You can, you can watch your top loading VCRs. We had to, you know, yeah, go to the movies and actually see things. Nothing was on TV. Yeah. We didn't have TV. We only had radio. <laughs> I know. Listen to us. We're that. We're that. <laughs> oh no, we've become that. We are. Well, Thank you for doing this with me. Absolutely. Because, you know, uh, I, I mean, I do know a few people who love Xanadu as much as we do. Most of my, a lot of my girlfriends from, <laughs> you know, growing up, but you know, they're not podcast hosts. So I didn't, you know, yeah. it, 
be us talking for like eight hours about how much we love Xanadu. And like, you know, you and I both know actual facts about stuff where we can actually make this into a podcast. So well, thank you so much for doing this. With my, me. It was my, look, it's my great pleasure. And, and, and anytime you want to talk about something, just let me know. But yeah, this is, this harkens back to also a film that a time when you could kind of discover a movie that wasn't a huge hit, that wasn't somehow tied into the Marvel extended universe or whatever that thing is called. And you can sort of discover a film and enjoy it on your own terms when it would be on cable or flipping around, which sometimes if you're going on your Netflix or your Hulu's or whatever, it's sometimes hard to stumble onto something. You seem to be right. looking for things specifically or doing things on that other people have talked about right. or you see people tweeting about. Yeah. And to actually stumble across something going, what the hell, especially something that got bad reviews. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, this, they, you know, this probably would not have done well on Rotten Tomatoes. But then to sort of discover it and watch it on your own terms and say, like, do you know what? As a Thanksgiving dinner, this is not good. But as an ice cream parlor, this is pretty tasty. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my thoughts. Yep. I just, you know, it it gives me comfort. It's one of those things where I could just put it on. Sometimes I don't even have to watch it. I can just listen to it while I'm doing other things. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, this is my great pleasure to yap about a film that my mother saw in 1981 and hated. Thought it was well, so stupid. Talk about a movie that my parents refused to take me to see. So there you go. <laughs> this is our revenge. Yes. So thank you for doing this. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed that trip down memory lane. If you've never seen Xanadu, I suggest you watch it as soon as you can. And if you have watched Xanadu and you appreciate it as much as both me and Sully, I hope you learned some facts about the film that you may not have known before listening to this podcast and that you appreciate the film even more now. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you all next time.